From the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you, will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will, I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. From the book of Philippians, chapter 4, beginning with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for our gospel reading? From the gospel according to St. Luke, beginning with verse 7 of chapter 3. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. If anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them, the gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all this morning on this third week of Advent this day of rejoicing, of celebrating. We've been exploring the past couple weeks in this season, some of the major themes of the season of Advent. 
Advent is a season of repentance. It's a season of waiting, of longing. We looked at big themes like judgment, like repentance, like anticipation. Historically, Advent was also, like I said earlier, a season of fasting. It was actually much like Lent. The church goes through these seasons of fasting and then feasting. And Advent was a season not of feasting, that came after Christmas, um, but it was a season of fasting, of waiting for um, anticipating something, of God's movement in our world and in our lives. Um, this Sunday, today is the third Sunday of Advent. And like I said, it's traditionally called Godet Sunday. Godet means rejoice. So in the midst of waiting, we rejoice. We celebrate. We look back on what God has done for us and we celebrate that. Now that may seem strange to us, celebrating and waiting at the same time. Sometimes we like to celebrate things after we get them. <laughs> but what does it mean to celebrate while we wait, while we anticipate? And the Bible is full of all these stories that like play around with time. They talk about God's faithfulness in the past and his faithfulness in the future and his faithfulness currently all kind of inter interchangeably together. These stories recognize that God somehow has already arrived. God is in our midst. He's present with us. We believe that as we gather together week after week, that God is with us, that he's present with us, that God lives and dwells in your heart by faith. And he, even as he is here, he is still in another sense, not yet here. The church has believed that and has held that tension. After, after the angel gives Mary the news that she will give birth to Jesus, Mary sings this song. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. It raises this question about Mary. Is she singing about something that happened in the past? She's just heard that she's going to give birth to Jesus. Is she singing about the past, about what he's done in the past? Is she singing about what he's doing right in her moment? Or is, he singing about, is she singing about what is to come? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> she's playing around with time here, that God has been faithful and the one who has been faithful will also be faithful in the future. That's part of what it means to be a person of faith. The one who has been faithful will be faithful. So today we have this opportunity to reflect and celebrate the goodness of God, that God has brought us through so much already, even as we anticipate that there will be a day when everything that's wrong with our world will be made right. We do that at the same time. And we see this in our text today. Suffering and rejoicing often go together in the life of faith. They're not mutually exclusive. Also, judgment and rejoicing go together. They're not mutually exclusive. We are a people who can celebrate God's judgment. Why? Because God's judgment is not human judgment. It's God's judgment. And he's the one who makes things right and whole, right? So when God judges something, that's the rightness that's happening. And that's what we want. We get in our world, we get really huffy about the word judgment, don't we? Don't judge me. The other day we were at Turnip Truck. I know I tell a lot of Lucy stories. I hope I'm not, I don't bore you guys with those, but um, we were at Turnip Truck and, and Lucy has a favorite cashier there. 
he always blows, he's an older guy and he blows balloon animals for her. And, um, and so she's gotten a friendship with him. And so she picked out this cashier and wanted to stand in line with this cashier. Well, the problem was there were like lots of other cashiers who had empty lines and they were just standing there waiting. And then he's got this really long line with people in front of him. And so I'm like, okay, fine. I'm gonna stand there and we sit there. And then several times I look over and I go, Lucy, you see, there's an empty line over there. She'll go, no, I wanna, I wanna stay at this one. And I go, Lucy, it's kind of awkward because we're standing behind all these people and there's empty lines over there. And then at one point she looks and she says, I wanna stay in his line, don't judge me. <laughs> like we push on this idea of judgment. We struggle with this idea, don't. You're getting so judgy, like don't judge me. Don't look at what I'm doing or saying as bad or awkward or weird, like don't judge me. And that's perhaps appropriate because we are not judges, are we? at least not perfect judges. Um, and there's always a sense that the person who is judging you or is judgy is not qualified. They are not the ultimate judge. So that is appropriate. But God's judgment is different because God's judgment is true. It's perfect judgment. Judgment does have a negative sense to it. It, it is about revealing things that are hidden. And when those things are broken or wicked or, or wrong, then yes, there's a negative sense to that. Sometimes we don't want to hear the doctor's diagnosis, that there's something in our lives that's not right, something in our bodies that's not right. Sometimes it's easier just not to know. I went through a time uh, when I was an associate pastor at, um, at a church in Oklahoma, and um, there were some people that misunderstood some things that I said, and they called me, I was being called names behind my back and people calling me a heretic and people saying that I, you know, um, maybe didn't, wasn't saved or, you know, wasn't rescued, you know, all these kind of things and just saying all these weird and frustrating things, questioning my Christianity. And ironically, all this happened because I started kind of re-embracing some more traditional forms of Christianity, some of the older forms of Christianity, and that was somehow heretical, okay? So this was all happening and a bunch of people began to leave the church at that time in a huff, really angry and upset about that. And I remember a few conversations that I would have with friends and they would mention, you know, I just talked to such and such. You know, they left the church there. They said this about you and they said this about the church. And the first few times I would wanna know that. I wanna go, yeah, like, what is that? Maybe I can repair my reputation here. Maybe I can talk to them. And after several times I got to the point where they would go, you know, I talked to such and such and I'd go, nah, I don't wanna hear it. <laughs> I don't hear that anymore. There's certain things in life we just don't want to know, right? Like, I think some of us do that with the news, that we hear the news and we hear such bad news in our world. And so sometimes we just go, I'm done. Like, I don't want to read this anymore. I'm, I'm turning off news. I'm turning off Twitter, you know, whatever it is. I'm done with this. And, and a lot of that is appropriate um, because knowing the truth is hard. Um, knowing the truth is hard. It often means that we're gonna to have to change something or that we're gonna experience some discomfort or some pain in our lives. Knowing the truth about our lives means reversing course from the places that we've missed the mark. If we know the truth about what we've done and about who we are and we actually come to grips with that, it's gonna mean I either have to change something or I have to live with that reality. And that's really uncomfortable, it's really difficult. But in addition to that, there's simply some pain and discomfort with just the idea of being known, isn't there? Just the idea that somebody knows everything about us, that is painful. It is, I wanna to suggest today, beautiful, but it's also painful, it's difficult. 
It hurts to share your failures with someone, things that are embarrassing, your weak spots. So the warning that John gives us today to repent, the warning of judgment, that is a stinging thing in a sense. It reveals things that we have to know and have to come to grips with. But we've explored the past couple weeks that justice and righteousness come from the heart of God. That the God who is the judge is the God who is fully loving, fully generous, who knows what's right for us and knows what's right for the world. So judgment, even though it's hard and it stings, judgment is also right and good and true. We can trust him. We can trust the God who is judge. We can embrace judgment as both stinging and joyful at the same time. When we hear Paul say in our Philippians text that was read, when, when he says, rejoice in the Lord, sometimes we tend to think about rejoicing as like an inner feeling only. That it's when I well up with joy, it bursts forth from me. But I don't think that's what Paul means here. Paul is not talking about a feeling. Paul is talking about a public celebration. He's commanding the church to celebrate to rejoice regardless of how they feel. This passage and this rejoice in the Lord has little or nothing to do with feelings. Have you ever noticed in the Bible, the Bible never commands us to feel certain things. Never does. The Bible never says you better feel this way. Now throughout the Bible, there are lots of expressions of all kinds of feelings. There's affirmation of feelings. There's place to express all kinds of anger and frustration and joy and all kinds of things. But the Bible never says you better feel this way. Why? Because feelings change. Feelings are fleeting. They're valid. They're appropriate. They should be affirmed. But feelings are like thermometers. They, they tell us what's going on inside of us. But... We human beings are capable of acting in ways that are not always what we feel. We are capable of doing things that don't always line up with how we feel. So Paul is calling the church at Philippi, he's saying, publicly celebrate King Jesus. Publicly celebrate who the king is. In the church, you'll notice we have rhythms of celebrations. We have feasts. We have times we throw parties. We don't just kind of whenever we feel like it, we're like, now we're gonna celebrate today. Today we don't feel like it, so we're not gonna celebrate. We are a people of celebrating, of remembering God's faithfulness. And we do this in public. And we can do this no matter what our circumstances are. But notice there's a source of our rejoicing. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Jesus Christ is the source of our rejoicing. Believe it or not, this statement would have been really subversive and controversial at this time. Uh, the word Lord in and of itself was controversial. Uh, one of the major propaganda statements of the day was to say Caesar is Lord. It was shown everywhere. All throughout the Roman Empire, it was Caesar is Lord. Ultimately recognize that your final authority is Caesar. It was like their equivalent of a bumper sticker. Caesar is Lord. On, every, on coins, on images, everywhere, Caesar is Lord. So for Paul to say, rejoice in the Lord, referring to Jesus, publicly celebrate the person of Jesus Christ is so controversial. It's so challenging. Caesar was an oppressor. He embodied what we called last week, right-hand power. He was the one who made sure that everybody knew that he was in charge. 
through military strength, through a type of peace that came through violence, by plastering his image over all of the Roman occupied world. And according to this kind of right-hand power that has to make sure that everybody knows that it's the strongest and it's the best and it's better than anybody else, in in the context of this right-hand power, the church in Philippi looks like the losers. They looked like a small band of people that had absolutely no power in the world. They were outcast. They were persecuted. So for Paul to call them to to rejoice in the midst of their struggle, to remember that they have a better story, that Jesus has risen from the dead, that Caesar is not Lord and Jesus is God would be ultimately subversive. It would be countercultural. It would be controversial. They can rejoice in a different Lord, in a different kingdom, no matter what their circumstances look like, no matter what their suffering looks like. And again, rejoicing and suffering are not mutually exclusive. We rejoice in the midst of a broken world. Rejoicing is not ignoring circumstances. It's not saying I'm gonna pretend that everything's fine and I'm just gonna be happy. No, that's not rejoicing. Rejoicing says, I understand what things look like. I understand the circumstances and yet I trust in a God who's been faithful and will be faithful. Somebody say amen this morning. All right. Rejoicing is a subversive act. Uh, Has anybody seen this show, The Man in the High Castle? Okay, good, a few of us at least. (laughs) For those of you who've missed it, it's a a great show. I recommend it. It provides an alternate history of the years right after World War II. Alternate history, what does that mean? So it basically speculates what would happen if the allied forces as opposed to the Axis forces won the war. Okay, how would that change? So if you look at this, uh, what's happened in this world, it's like the 1960s, I think. It's a while after the war. The Eastern United States is occupied by Nazi Germany, okay, the Nazi regime. The Western United States is op- op- uh, occupied by Imperial Japan. Okay? So it's this really interesting, uh, fascinating kind of story. Um, but there's this subversive strain through the movie, and I'm not ru- ruining things. This is just the basic like, underlying plot. It's not where it's going. There are these films that begin to circulate, these like films that you watch. And the films depict like a parallel universe where the allied forces won. So like what really happened, okay? And it's the rejoicing and it shows all the rejoicing of the people who have won and how things were different and freedom that has happened in this profound way. And there's these amazing, beautiful scenes where when people are watching these films and they're like, what are these things? Are they propaganda? Did somebody make these up? Are they another world or another universe? What's happening? And there's these scenes of these people watching these films of freedom, watching these films where the world is different than their current circumstances, and they begin to just cry. And then they begin to celebrate and rejoice and shout, right? That is a, that's a little bit of a piece of what we might call like eschatological rejoicing. It's a rejoicing in a sense that Our circumstances look like this, but there is another world. There is something else. And there is this hope that something's coming, that something's different. Those are the kind of people who we're called to be. Not those who ignore circumstances, but those who even choose to rejoice in the midst of it. So how does our gospel text tie into the theme of rejoicing? It's a very harsh text. 
And this hits me every year at Advent that we have, all we wanna do in our world is we wanna start getting to the manger. We wanna hear the shepherds and the magi and the manger. And then most of our texts have to do with this guy, John the Baptist. <laughs> and he's, he's wearing camel's hair and he's got locusts and he's yelling for people to repent. And we're going, this is Christmas time. What's happening here? But John the Baptist here, he, <laughs> the passage starts out, if you want a meek and mild Christmas, uh, John yells out, you brood of vipers. It's the first thing he says. He's telling them of the coming wrath. So we read this and we go, wait, this is the pink candle Sunday? Like, what's happening? But John is not telling the crowd about judgment that comes from a mean, capricious, vindictive God. That's often how we portray God's wrath. John is warning them that the true God is about to make the world right. God is about to bring about his judgment and justice. There were a lot of people in John's audience who believed that they were particularly special because of their ethnicity. And in a sense, they were. They were God's chosen people. But this belief in their specialness had caused them at this time to separate themselves from other people, to assume that they didn't need to live God's love and goodness to the world and to the outsiders because they were part of the in-group, the special group. So John accuses them of two things. First of all, he says they're greedy, trying to hoard their wealth. Secondly, they just assume that God is on their side. Too bad this text doesn't apply to 21st century Americans, right? John reminds them that God's people have always been called to bear fruit, to live God and to show, to open up and to show the light and life to the world. And he says they've neglected their responsibility. They've given their lives to counterfeits, things that don't bear God's fruit. And those counterfeits are about to be chopped down. The ax is at the root of the tree. This warning that John gives, I think, is a constant one for us. What are we holding on to that doesn't bear good fruit? Is it money? Is it control? I don't know about you, but I am shocked. It is amazing at how much anxiety can be caused in our lives over money and lack of control. Think about that, how we cling on to those things. But if you think about control, control is always kind of fleeting. Like, do we ever really have control? <laughs> Something could change tomorrow drastically in our world that we wouldn't expect. I know some of you, I'm freaking out by just saying that, right? But um, do we ever really have control? That's a fleeting thing. Money is a fleeting thing, right? Do we have a substance or relationship that is unhealthy that we keep turning to over and over again? It's amazing how often we can convince ourselves that we will feel better if we just go back to that thing. And we do for a while, right? But eventually that shows itself to be hollow and incomplete. Do we believe that we are somehow better than others because we live in a certain kind of neighborhood or because we believe we work harder than everybody else does? It's amazing how often we do this and we, we know that's wrong and so we kind of recalibrate and then we do it again and we realize all those things, money, control, like um, unhealthy substances and relationships and um, separating ourselves from other people, all of that's empty. It's fleeting. So the crowds respond how each of us might. They say to John, okay, well, what should we do? What are we supposed to do? 
And his response is basically, hold things in your life loosely. Hold your material possessions loosely. Don't take your material possessions too seriously. The best way to do that, John would say, give it away. If you have two coats, don't keep one just in case you spill one on the other one and and then you have a backup. That's my interpretation of this passage. Give it away. The same with food. Our pantries shouldn't just be stuffed and bursting at the seams at all time. Give it freely, give it away. Giving helps us to realize that all of our stuff belongs to God anyway. It wasn't ours in the first place. And in a sense, when we give these things away, we're not just giving them to our neighbor, even though that we are giving them to our neighbor, we're also giving them to God. A theologian, uh, Miroslav Volf says, we don't give to God because he needs it. He's the great giver. He is the source of all good gifts. He owns everything anyway. So Wolf says that giving is kind of like receiving something from God's right hand and then placing it back in his left hand. Well, why would we do that? Well, the very heart of God, therefore, the very heart of the image of God which we bear is giving. To be truly human is to give. That's the core of being truly human. The core of God, the core of the universe, the core of this image that we bear is giving. We are at our best when we give. John is calling people to repent. And when you do that, he says, you will bear the fruit of repentance. In other words, your life will look different when you repent. Notice that there's two specific groups who Luke mentions approach John. One of them are the tax collectors. And the tax collectors say, John, what should we do? Um, Tax collecting was seen as this time as like a naturally shady business. So you might have, I won't name any, but you you might know of some businesses in our world that you kind of go, oh, they do that. That's a little shady, right? Um, Caesar and Herod often pushed people to pay more than was required in taxes. And then the tax collectors would try to get richer themselves and pad their own pockets. So they would then raise the price even higher on people. So it was just this strange kind of shady business. Uh, They would try to extort more money. And John tells them, don't collect any more money than was prescribed to you. Don't collect any more than that. And then the soldiers ask, they say, well, what should we do? So the tax collectors ask, and then the soldiers ask. Now, these are most likely Herod's troops. So think about it this way. If this was our world, this is not the army that's asking. It's the National Guard or it's the police force. It's like the local kind of troops in in this time. And they were probably Jews who were in the service of a governor, Herod, who was half Jewish. And he was ultimately under the authority of Caesar, under the authority of Rome. So John calls out Herod and he calls out the men who work for Herod. Many of you may feel like you're in this job where you're just working for the man, (laughs) where you're just going, I don't know about this company I work for. Like, I don't know that they do great stuff. I get a paycheck. There's no other way around this, but I'm really just working for the man. That might be really hard. Maybe you see things about your company that are unethical or you feel kind of gross about it. Well, for the soldiers who might be feeling this way, they're like, I'm supposed to repent, but Herod's a pretty shady guy and we're working for him and we get a paycheck. So John, what are we supposed to do? Well, John just says this, don't push people for extra money. Live ethically in your job. Don't make threats of people or false accusations. And then he says, be content with your wages. What is John saying here? He's not saying don't ever ask for an annual raise, okay? That's not what he's saying. This was unheard of in this world. They didn't do that kind of thing. 
John is saying, don't use your lack of pay as an excuse to exploit and abuse other people. Don't use the fact that you're underpaid to think that you can just be unkind to people or unethical to people. That's what John is saying to the soldiers. All of these things point to what we just discussed. Rejoice in what you have. Don't feel the need for control or to push others or to work the system. When we realize that everything is God's and the world only runs because of him, we realize God will take care of us. We can trust him. So therefore we can hold things in our lives loosely. Paul says to the church at Philippi that we should respond to Christ's lordship with gentleness. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Again, it's this picture of holding loosely. We are gentle with the world because we know we don't own the world. We don't get to own the world. We can't control it or manipulate it. We approach our neighbors and our society with gentleness. One of the things we talked about last week was how John the Baptist lived his entire life pointing to someone else. We talked about how John the Baptist was actually pretty famous at his t- in his time. In fact, there is more like evidence that we have of John the Baptist's life than we even do of Jesus's life, even though we have a lot about Jesus. He was a famous guy. But here, John the Baptist and everywhere in his life, he points to Jesus constantly. Here he says, he's not even fit to tie Jesus's sandals. John is proclaiming there is a new king in town and this king ain't Herod. He is saying that justice is coming and he uses these images of the fork and the fire. So the farmer's fork separates wheat from chaff, the good stuff from the stuff we don't need when cast away. And then there's fire that burns up. So once the chaff has been separated, the fire burns all of that stuff that's empty, all that stuff that's hollow that we don't need, it burns all of that up. In the verses that fall just out of our gospel reading, John the Baptist gets really political and really controversial. The gospel is always political. What did I just say? Yeah, the gospel is always political. What does that mean? Well, the gospel is always calling out the structures that rule the world, always. Pointing out where they're broken and where they're passing away. Whatever it is in our world that people pay allegiance to as their final and ultimate authority, whatever it is that people see as their ultimate source, the ultimate authority, the thing that runs the world, that thing is always called out as an imposter by the gospel. Because of this, the gospel is always political. But listen to this. The gospel is not partisan. If Christianity becomes beholden to a particular political party, we've cozied up to the very thing we're supposed to call out. (laughs) That's why Christians always find themselves in awkward political positions. Like we don't always fit neatly in categories. No political ideology really fits. Christians value the sanctity of life from birth to death all the way through. Christians care for the poor. It's not always clear and there's different perspectives on how they should be cared for, but they should be cared for. Christians always care for the foreigner and for the outsider, even when it puts us personally at risk. And yet we know that we have to do all of this thoughtfully. (laughs) It's especially awkward in America today where we have so much, Christians have so much political power. That would be so unheard of to the people who heard the Bible for the first time that Christians had political power such a strange thing. 
The political situation of our text is that the leader, Herod Antipas, who was like the governor, he was called the king of the Jews. And he had had an affair with the wife of his brother, okay? And after that, she divorced his brother, Philip, and married Herod Antipas, okay? John denounces this, but he doesn't just announce it to say it's morally wrong. He says, basically, Herod's decision here reveals he can't be the true king of the Jews, He can't be God's chosen one. He can't be the one who rules God's people because his behavior is off. It's wrong. It's inappropriate. It's revealing who he is. This is not the kind of thing that God's king would do. His behavior proves he could never be God's king. His life is not bearing the fruit of repentance. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, what runs our world? What runs your life? What kind of fruit is that thing bearing? Does it look like the fruit of the God who is self-giving love? Today, it's my prayer as we close that um, this would be a time for us to prepare our hearts for the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his second coming. It is my prayer that we would be a people who would have joy in God's conviction in our lives. When God reveals things that are broken, that we would be able to somehow, even in the stinging, that we'd be able to go, Lord, thank you for correcting that thing. Thank you for revealing that thing, that we would know God's heart and God's love for us so deeply that we could rejoice in his judgment. We have this precious little picture of Lucy's first immunization shots. And I got it really late to Britain. I don't know if we'll get it in time, but I'll tell this story. Um, Lucy's first immunization shots, poor thing, didn't know what was coming when we went into the doctor's office. This is Lucy's little face, (laughs) very first immunization shots, right? The needle went in, she was startled for a minute, and then she just burst into tears. And here we are, these first-time parents, We adopted this little baby girl. We take her to the doctor and we know this is right for her. We know this is good. We know this is appropriate. And yet we're going, we just heard our little girl and she doesn't know that we're, this is what's happening. This is, doesn't know what we're doing. God's conviction is often what's painful and it feels painful in the moment. It is hard to open up ourselves and our lives to somebody else and say, I missed the mark. Will you help me with this? Will you guide me in this? but it's what heals us. James says, confess your sins one to another. But what's the reason for that? That you might be healed. Something about opening up our lives and saying, I've missed it. I've missed the mark that actually heals us, that restores us. It's tough to come to the place of discovering that the things we hold on to are so limited, but it is the best way to live. Paul says that something beautiful will happen when we rejoice in the world. He, or in the, uh, rejoice in the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to worry, he says. You don't have to worry. We can simply pray. Well, great, Paul. That sounds easy, right? I don't have to worry about anything. I just pray. But what he's saying is when we realize who runs the show, it's like the line in Amazing Grace, and grace my fears relieved right? That when we realize that we're not ultimately in control, there is a freedom from anxiety that comes. Anxiety is not something unique to our culture. In Paul's time, many people had anxiety about, am I pleasing the right God or goddesses in order to run my life? 
But Christian prayer was unique in that it asserts that God always heals us and hears us and that he will ultimately make the world new. Prayer is an act of trust, surrendering our lives to him. Now that doesn't mean that, man, I'm a Christian now, I'm never gonna be anxious again. (laughs) No, not at all. It doesn't mean we just go through life with laissez-faire attitudes, all this stuff doesn't really matter, everyday stuff doesn't matter, but it means we have a deeper trust. We know who is truly Lord and we can rest in that. We remember in this season that Christ has come, that Christ is with us, and that Christ will come again. Amen. Lord, we are thankful for a better way. All of us in this room could tell story after story of times where we've chased certain things in our life and said, that is the final thing. That's the thing that has ultimate authority, that has ultimate value. And then we found those things time and time again to be hollow, shallow, or empty. Sometimes even the good things we found, even the blessings, when put at the center, that they fail us. And yet, Lord, we receive those things as shadows, as foretastes of who you are and your kingdom. Lord, today I pray that you would reveal our hearts all of our hidden motives, all of our brokenness, all of our sin, that you would open us up today to your healing and your restoration. But Lord, in that, may we know who you are, your goodness. May we learn to trust you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.